Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name's Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Not much, Richie. What's going on with you? Man, I am in Fat City, yo. I yeah. am just... What happened? What's going on? So, for about eight years, I've been rocking this old sub-HD uh, monitors, right? And I had two of them, and they worked well, so I never thought about changing them out, right? Because of uh, my glorious employer, Brando Zero Unlimited, um, I do have a hardware budget. And with my hardware budget this year, I decided to buy a new monitor. And I chose the LG 38 UC99 Ultra Wide. And I'm looking at its gloriousness right now. And it's amazing. This thing is, uh, it's 3840 by 1600, running at 75 hertz, which was a big deal for me because I was running DisplayPort with my other two monitors and they, the refresh rate was just, maybe it refreshed, maybe it didn't. I don't know. You, you, it's kind of hit and miss, especially if you're playing video. But this is so great and it's curved and I am just in fat city. I could get four code editors up on my screen at the same time. It's glorious, glorious. Dude, that's crazy. So eight years Dude, you must, that's, that must be like enlightened day for you, man. Like you're in a completely different world right now. Oh yeah, it really is. So the, I didn't think I would need to buy a monitor arm for it, but because of my uh, decrepit age and me having to wear reading glasses and things like that, my distance from sitting to standing because I have a standing desk, it's different. So it, I needed to kind of pull my monitor in when I'm, when I'm uh, standing and push it back a little bit when I'm sitting. I know it's it's a little weird, but or I change my glasses, which I don't want to do. I don't want to have to keep swapping every time I sit down and stand up. But I have the arm, and I can pull it in and pull it out at whenever I want. I can pull it up, pull it down a little bit, and it's just all encompassing, and it's wonderful. It's amazing. Sweet, I, that's awesome, dude. I suggest everybody get a new monitor like right now. Like, <laughs> run and get one. Nice. That's crazy. So what's new with you? So since you're talking about gadgets, I'm going to talk about one of the gadgets that I got. So you know, I've been going through this home automation journey, right? Since you know, since we just got the house, and I think a couple of weeks ago, I'd mentioned to to you know, I'd mentioned on the show that I was going to get a garage controller. So I eventually got it, and it works amazing. Uh, it is really simple to install. Twenty minutes, plops it up in the, in the um, in the garage, and now I have full access of the garage from my phone. Um, I can see it on my phone, I can control the doors, I could see when it's open. And it's it's so cool because now when me and Cameron go to the park, you know, he has his um, his little pedal Batmobile and, you know, my bike that I ride on. And I don't have to be, okay, hold on, let me go back in the garage to close the garage to come back out the front door. Now we can just leave the garage and, you know, when I'm halfway up the street, like I could close the garage. Now, I'll be honest with you, that is for me is like the coolest thing in the world. So I've been a I've been like a little kid in a candy store, like doing like these little projects in the house. So now I'm looking for my next project. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to be yet, but we'll see what happens. So it sounds like you're having a lot of fun playing with your uh, your little house toys. 
Yeah, man. You know what? I actually got a, an Amazon dot. Uh, I got some dots. So, um, actually, so I got two dots. I don't know what I'm going to do with them yet. So, so can you, can you say, uh, Alexa, open my garage door and will it do it? Yeah, when I plug them in, they're supposed to be able to do that, right? And so I'm thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to have one in the kitchen and one upstairs. And um, yeah, and then I'll have that plugged into the system. So I think that'll be pretty cool. So you know what my what my kids use the dot for? Play music? No, not music. Just the Hamilton soundtrack. That's the only Are thing. Are you guys still listening for. to that? That's oh it, my man. God. You guys That's are like it. addicts. <laughs> so like the Amazon dot is a dedicated Hamilton soundtrack uh, machine. That's all it is. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> but you don't call your Alexa Alexa, right? Oh, man, we had to change it, right? Because Alexa is the name of my daughter. And so that just, the first thing I had to do is I had to change it. So they announced that you could, t- uh, this week, they announced that you could change it to computer. So uh, I changed mine to computer because Star Trek, ladies and gentlemen, how cool is that? Computer, can you order me more dishwashing soap? Thank you. It's beautiful. That's crazy. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Brian Brackeen. Brian is the founder and CEO of Kairos, a Miami-based human analytics platform providing face recognition and emotion analysis to businesses with developer-friendly APIs and SDKs. Kairos is an Endeavor company and currently services more than 10,000 clients in 70 countries, processing millions of faces each month. Prior to founding Kairos, Brian served as a senior project manager for Apple Inc., and before Apple, he was a senior managing consultant for IBM. In addition to his work at Kairos, Brian lectures extensively around the world on entrepreneurship, code, digital economy, AI, and machine learning. And he participates in mentorship programs for organizations like Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code, and School District of Miami-Dade County. This episode was recorded on December 12th, 2016, and now our conversation with Brian Breckin. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. For today's episode of Away from the Keyboard, we have Brian Brackeen. Is that how you pronounce your last name, right, Brackeen? It is Brackeen, yep. Brackeen, great. Well, Brian, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for uh, coming on. Good to be here. For our guests that may not know you or may not be familiar with what you do, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Sure, sure. So like you said, I'm Brian Brecking. I'm CEO of a company called Kairos. Um, we're a facial recognition company based in Miami, Florida. Um, we do a few things. Uh, one, pure facial recognition, so figuring out who somebody is. We can find one person in a billion in about two seconds or less. Um, we also do emotion recognition, so we understand someone's deeper human emotions just from their face. And then we can also do um, what we call demographics. So that's everything else about you. So your age, your gender, your attentiveness, even your ethnicity. Oh, great. And I definitely want to dig into Kairos and what you guys are doing. But before I even get into that, one of the things that we really like to do on the show is really dig deep into you know, the journey that our guests have taken from where they started to where they ended up today. So could you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in technology and where did your technology career start? Well, we're drilling in, so I'll go way, way, way back. Way, uh, way back. Way back uh, to about 30 years ago. I'm, yeah, I'm 38, so about 30 years ago. Um, my father brought home a computer 
Um, back then, Atari made computers as well. Right. <laughs> and uh, plopped it down on the dining room table and said, like, this is like the future. You're going to learn this thing, you know? And uh, I absolutely positively fell in love with it, you know, even then. Back then, you had to code just to get a game to work. I mean, you had to put in some simple DOS commands and things. Right. Just even play it like Joust or whatever the games were back then. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I really got deeply into coding at that stage and into computers and it never turned around. When you got started, like, for instance, I remember when, when my parents got a computer. I remember computers used to come with these books, right? <laughs> and they had these thick manuals that you had to read. And for me, it was a book that actually came with HTML in it. Uh, so my first foray into doing any type of you know, computer-related, you know, anything. It was an HTML book. And, you know, I read the book, and I always thought the most amazing thing that I did, I was so excited when I could put my name on the screen. And, you know, it's a trivial thing when you think about it today, but, like, I was so excited because it's the first thing I ever did. And I'm on the phone, and I'm calling my friends, and I'm saying, yo, dude, you need to come over. You need to see this. This is amazing. Like, my name is on this machine. And, and so that, for me, was enough motivation for me to kind of push through that right it kind of took me you know it kind of i guess lit the fire for my career right and kind of took me all the way through that right well i'm guessing that's the same thing for you right like you had the exposure to this um to an atari and that kind of helped propel you and kind of gave you like the the motivation to kind of keep going right yeah the, the concept of manipulating a machine to get an output as completely reasonable as that sounds today sitting here that was a completely unreasonable thing <laughs> at the time, you know. It, uh, you just—it's—I sound so old, but you know, it—you know—you would just buy any piece of equipment, uh, and then you would use it. And but there was no manipulation of, of that equipment really for right. you know for any kind of customization or anything. Um, right. And yeah, this was the beginning of that that whole change of being a kind of a wizard that could kind of self you kind of kind of create the own world that you wanted to uh, play with and so kind of moving forward a little bit i guess could we say are you a traditionally trained computer science person yeah so i did a lot of computers in in high school and i got to college i got accepted to two i got accepted to lincoln university in pennsylvania and also got accepted into penn state and i dropped out of both it was I started at one, didn't like it, went to another, didn't like it either. Uh, it was I got through one whole semester at Penn State and just realized it wasn't for me. So really, most of what I've learned is uh, taught by my my father or just self taught. Could you remember then what your your first job was was like? You know, your first technology job was like. Oh, one of my early tech jobs was at Comcast, actually. Um, oh, really? Yeah, much smaller company then, um, but uh, I was way over my head, uh, and I, but I learned a ton. I was the manager of like system support and administration, which is a very fancy term for, you know, guy who fixed the computers when they broke. Uh, and yeah, I got a chance to work on them all across the company, different divisions, different areas, sometimes different cities. Uh, and it really kind of got me going in my kind of corporate um, computer kind of life. And kind of looking at your, your history too, like you've worked with a lot of interesting companies. In addition to Comcast, you work with Apple and a lot of other like really high profile companies, right? What was that like for you? And like, 
how much did you learn as you you kind of got the experience working with some of these larger companies? Yeah, I think that my big learning was like, you've got to be a purple squirrel, right? And so what that means is, if you want to kind of work on the cool projects, if you want to be doing something that's meaningful, you've got to create and cultivate a skill that is so unique that they just have to have you on it. I also knew that I wasn't like a very, like, I'm, I think I'm a pretty good founder, but I'm a terrible employee. Absolutely <laughs> horrible employee. Why do you say that? I ask too many questions. I'm always like, why are we doing it this way? You know, nothing's ever, uh, any process isn't good enough. And, and nor am I willing to adhere to process. I'm more the person to just do it and apologize sure. uh, than to ask for permission. Gotcha. doesn't really fit most, if not all, corporate cultures. Sure. Ask for forgiveness and not for permission, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> nice. And so while you're at these companies, like, what was your role exactly? Were you a developer? Were you working on any very particular topics kind of thing? Or like, yeah, what, would, you, what were you doing? I would say my kind of a career skill is that of a, an IT architect. So someone who is technical enough to understand the code and the approaches that we're taking, but also big picture. So thinking about what's the most efficient way for us to get data from one place to another, you know, thinking about you know, how do we keep systems up and running and be fault tolerant? Um, all kinds of kind of big questions. But, and I think the, the last but really most important thing is I, I believe I've really woven empathy into my entire career. So better understanding how do we serve our user? How do we serve our customer? Um, yeah, just really putting the customer first in everything, including internal customers and coworkers. So it sounds like you... Again, they're not just the person that understands the code, but again, you understand how the business works and you understand how that business affects people. So it's almost like you're the synergy between the different sides of a company almost. Yeah, I was always kind of that center cog. And you know, that's, a, that's not always an easy place. You know, sometimes those of us who are technical, things are very clear. Oh, this is the way we should do it. No doubt, you know, very binary, black or white. Sure. Uh, and then on the business side, you know, there's usually a heck of a lot of gray. Um, yep. Or an, a lack of understanding of kind of how an underlying process works, but they know what the outcome is they, they're looking for. And so, yeah, how do you kind of bridge those two those two personality types, particularly when kind of school and the edu formal education and things don't allow those two people to even be in the same kind of classes or be around each other until later in life? Right, 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 right. I mean, that, that's a hard place to be in, right? You know, having to be the person between the businesses and, you know, the people that are actually implementing um, the systems and the software and whatnot, um, it's, you know, it really becomes an exercise in communication and transparency, right? And, and self-deprecating humor, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not, a, it's definitely not an easy thing to do, man. And it definitely takes someone with, you know, the patience, with the drive to really kind of help bridge those, those two sides together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it takes a good team on both sides, I think. Uh, even in my work today, I consider myself you know, I, I get to channel the good work of the team. I, I would strongly say that everything that's good about Kairos is because of them. I just get to lead a great team. You know, obviously you, you're a company man at one point, right? Like you, you work for some very successful and, and large software and technology companies. Like at what point did you realize that this was going to be the right time for you to start Kairos? I kind of remember the very moment, actually. I remember... The very second, I remember sitting at my desk at Apple, 
Um, and you can imagine Apple. I was at Apple in the kind of post iPhone, but pre and all the way through iPad time. So yeah. just a crazy period of exponential growth. You know, jobs were still there. It was really, a really kind of fun time for the company. And, you know, I'm in San Francisco at headquarters. There's all kinds of like chefs making your meals and people doing your dry cleaning and all this other, you know, stuff. And I had no interest, absolutely no interest in <laughs> all of that, the bells and the whistles and the kind of uh, sort of the vanity type stuff. For me, it was it was about, I, I felt like my soul was being sucked into the neon lights above me. You know, I felt like I was just every minute I sat in that desk was a minute wasted for my kind of greater goal. Sure. And uh, I remember... Uh, Friday, going into my boss's office and handing the letter and resigning, and he, him being like, "Uh, like no, no, you don't, you don't resign. We're, <laughs> we're not. You're, you're not allowed to leave. Please, you're not allowed. Exactly. You must we'll be upset. Like this never happened at all. Exactly. I'll forget this. Don't worry. Go home this weekend. Have a good time. Come in late Monday. We'll have lunch. Blah right. blah blah. He was sure that I was going to change my mind. And. Uh, right. They took about two weeks of trying to convince me, talking to a whole a bunch of different people, and uh, no, I, I just knew it wasn't for me. When I'm kind of looking at the the meaning of the word Kairos, it stands for the right moment and the right opportunity. And so when I hear your story, you know, it, it kind of resonates with how much of you is probably inside of this company, right? Like this is not just another business, right? Like I'm sure this is very much of an uh, an extension of you and your goals and your focuses and your passions and what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah, that that name it took a long time to find, but we we really deeply believe it. I I think I would say we think all of us that we were all put in each other's lives at this moment in time to do something really really special. Deeply deeply believe in that that it's almost a d- divine uh, kind of moment for all of us, and we are committed to literally making our dent in the universe. That being said, could you tell us again a little bit about what does Kairos do and what are some of the, the services that you guys offer to people? Yeah, so if you think about those three things we talked about, the face recognition and the crowd demographics and uh, the emotion stuff, you know, the way our customers use it are different ways. So uh, you could be on a cruise ship and you know those photographers take pictures of you all throughout the cruise. You could walk up to a kiosk, facial recognition, and then all your photos show up. Um, or you could be, your kid could be at a summer camp and, um, you know, you don't want to see pictures of, of everybody else's kid. You want to see pictures of your kid. And so through facial recognition, when you log into like a portal, all you'll see is pictures of your kid at summer camp. But there could also be some things on the emotion side. So like, um, we do a lot of movies, um, testing. So, um, a couple of the big studios, you will, you'll go watch a movie. They'll pay you to watch a movie that's not out yet. And we have cameras in the front of the theater looking back at the audience of paid panelists as they're watching the film. And we're watching their emotions as they go up and down and then what different emotions there are present in every quarter second for every single person. And then with that data saying, okay, this character did well, this character didn't. This joke was funny, this one was not. You know, This part would maybe be a little bit confusing. And they can do some, one, do some post-production to kind of clean up the, the movie a bit. Um, but two, they can make much better movie trailers based on the emotions of the people that or watching the, the preview kind of film. And then last, with that kind of age and gender stuff, um, in things like kiosks and malls and subway stations, understanding and kind of the age and gender 
uh, and ethnicities of people that are looking at advertising so that we, they can um, better be marketed to. So it's almost like, like you're in the business of, I guess we can call it like emotional analytics almost, right? Like, let me look at this person or the pictures or images of these people and kind of determine how they're feeling about this thing. And you use that information to affect whatever the product happens to be. So whether it's, you know, I'm having, uh, let's say we're talking about a rally for a politician or we're talking about a movie screening, like you said, sports games, you know, anything event with like large groups of people or even to like if we're talking about, you know, looking at family photos or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah. We actually call it yeah, human analytics. So human analytics. we help our customers to better understand humanity. What are some of the more interesting use cases that you've seen from your customers so far and in terms of what they've been doing with your APIs? You know, a couple of things we think are really kind of interesting and growing um, in financial services and credit cards, um, particularly mobile payments, using the front facing camera to verify the identity of someone to make sure that they're not uh, using a stolen credit card or anything. You know, we can virtually eliminate credit card fraud through facial recognition. So that's certainly very interesting. I've had two credit cards stolen, numbers stolen in my life. I actually had the credit card, but they stole the number. Um, so I would love to see that kind of end in our society. Another thing I think is quite interesting is the use of our technology um, to help children, particularly autistic children, um, Alzheimer's patients to remember who their family is. Um, we help um, a company in India to find missing children. Um, and so, yeah, there's all kinds of use cases that are just, we're very, very, very excited about that help people. What do you, what do you think you draw your, your inspiration from? What made you decide, hey, I want to start a company that does you know, facial recognition and human analytics? Yeah, I wish I was that guy. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that Elon Musk, Jobsian, brilliant, you know. Uh, no, that, that certainly wasn't me. My first product, this is my first company, and our first product was a time clock. Okay. And we started using facial recognition to verify the identity of, employees. of the person clocking in, clocking out. Right, um, sure. And we realized along the way, after customers kept saying, hey, your facial recognition is great, like, I'd rather just use that. That was the big idea. You know, that was the, what the company was supposed to be, a facial recognition company. And again, now human analytics company and not just one use case. Let's, let's support and let's drive all use cases for everyone in the entire world. I mean, our, our big idea, our big challenge, our big purview, I think that, our, that we're trying to really push into the universe is every time anyone anywhere in the world has some interaction with a, with a device that we're helping that device kind of build empathy into that device, helping build empathy into that, into that interaction. And they're also therefore monetize that in a little bit. So every, hopefully every little thing that you do, there's some piece of that transaction comes back to Kairos so we can build a huge kind of multi-billion dollar business making people's lives better. Right. So you mentioned before that, you know, you were at Apple in the jobs era or post post jobs era? In the jobs era. Yep. And so while you were there, did you, did you get to interact with them any bit? You know, do you find that you got any, did you learn anything, I guess, from, from being around him while he was around? I learned a lot from him. Um, the way the company was designed and still is to a lot, to a point, um, it was almost like a circular 
organizational structure where right. pretty much they all, all roads lead to Steve. Um, so everyone kind of worked for him, <laughs> at, you know, at some level. That's I didn't have very much direct interaction. Um, I would see him in the cafeteria quite often. He wore the same thing every day. That's not a, like, that's not just for TV. Right. Uh, he was that guy. He ordered like the same things every day. He sat generally in the same spot most days, unless he was eating in his office. Um, the guy was just a creature of habit and, um, just, I learned a lot about just driving an idea to its perfect completion, um, from him. It's, I don't think he, you know, looking back, there are things that I take from Steve, um, in my own, in my own kind of CEO work. Uh, and there are also other things that I, I did not take from Steve. So the, the yelling, the screaming, the, the, the throwing things that, you know, that wasn't, that's my, not my management style. Um, but uh, the expectation of excellence absolutely is. Well, I think that's the thing about learning, right? Like you, you take a little bit and you, you kind of pick and choose the pieces that work for you and the pieces that make sense. Right. So you could you could see the whole picture, but, you know, maybe you only need a little piece. Right. And then you could kind of add your twist and your style and your flair to it to make it distinctly unique to you. Because, again, at the end of the day, you're not trying to be a copycat. Right. Like you're trying to be Brian and the best Brian that you could be to make the best company that you could have. Absolutely. And, and, and in this time, sometimes different levels of management are required for different times in history. And I think that uh, our approach is right for this time. When we talk about Kairos, and I know you, you had mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, you believe that everybody's kind of put in front of you for a reason, right? And, you know, you are where you are for, for certain reasons. Why is it that you decided to have a startup in Miami versus well, Silicon Valley or some one of these other more popular places to do that? Yeah, well, I moved here twice. Um, the first time I moved here was for all the wrong reasons. I, I broke up with a girl in Philly, where I'm originally from. And I was like, oh, that's it. Uh, I'm single now. I'm moving to Miami. And I got an efficiency apartment on Ocean Drive and it was just so tourist. It was right. painful. Um, <laughs> okay. Then I took a job at Apple, packed my things up, moved out to California for a couple of years. Um, and then when it was time to come back and start the company, first we went through an accelerator in, in Silicon Valley called Newbie Accelerator. Um, and then... We, we took a hard look at multiple cities, uh, Miami, Austin, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado, uh, and Boston. And we tried to figure out, based on the criteria of how many developers that are developing in our stack, um, how, much, how many angel investors are there, uh, how, how much, what's the cost of rent, what's the tax implications, like what's the quality of life. Like we looked at all those five or six different areas and Miami came out you know number one or number two in almost every single area um, including the amount of talent uh, and the access to that talent well, one of the like huge misconceptions about San Francisco is because there are like a ton of really talented developers and they're not all talented by the way, I can tell you, but quantity, quantity versus quality, right? Exactly, exactly. Because there's a ton of developers that oh, they're they're just laying on the streets waiting for a startup to come pluck them away. Like no, if you're a very talented dev, you already work for Twitter, Apple, Facebook, Google, you know, 
you name it, Stripe. Let me just go up and down the list, right? And and so the available talent in San Francisco is not better than the available talent in other cities. That's an absolute misnomer. The second thing is a lot of those people are in um, three to four year vesting periods on their stock agreements. So if they got to really, really, really believe, to, believe in you to give up the amount of equity that they're planning on, on getting. And at an early, early stage, when you are literally idea stage startup, you're just, just, it's impossible to get someone to leave Apple um, unless they're like your cousin, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. So, yeah, we looked at that. Um, and then the cost of doing business there, it's, you know, the, the rent. I have friends that are paying $95 a square foot um, for office space. You know, we're paying uh, 29 it's it's wow i just don't think it it's as wonderful as the hype makes it out to be yeah i can imagine you know i've always heard that south florida doesn't have a lot of talent and i've actually spoken to other startups you know on and off the show and you know some of them have been like hey well you know if we can't find these certain skill sets we're gonna have to leave and as in like they're gonna have to leave the state Right and and go to somewhere else and you know it was always very disheartening to me because you know I mean I I live in the economy right I live in this society so I'd like to believe that you know there's some good talent here so it's actually good to hear you say that right I think I kind of compliment that you know there is talent here um, viable talent and it's just as good as it, you can find like anywhere else in the United States yeah uh, just you know as technical people you know we are we're fans of math right. We, we, we believe in just the numbers, right? right? So imagine that the country's third most populous state and in the largest city in that state somehow has less talent than the other 49 states. It just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't pass muster, right? It just, like so, do, do we fill the state with all the untalented people, and all the other states have all the talented people? <laughs> it's just the the numbers don't just aren't there. Now, if you if people only want to compare um, Miami to San Francisco, um, that's fine. However, San Francisco is one city in an entire world, right? Miami, as compared to all the world cities would be in the top one-tenth of one percent in talent, in in investment, uh, in startups, right? Miami is, you know, we have 10-plus companies that have raised over $50 million. You know, we have a, at least, we have Magic Leap in there, a billion, you know, billion plus, but we've also got uh, just recently one of our, one of the companies here that Manny Medina runs, um, he created a new $2.4 billion entity um, that will be based here. So uh, just, I think it's these things are, are going on, but I think we're, we're just too tough on ourselves. And if you were to live in Des Moines, Iowa, I can promise you that you would see Miami as a 10 times better ecosystem. Um, in Philadelphia, I, people from Philadelphia would consider Miami a, a better ecosystem. Um, I just think that... Uh, That'll just that'll continue. One um, and two, I think that this is a long diatribe on a short question. But if you were to take 
the concepts that Brad Feld laid out about startup ecosystems, right? Right. People are so literal as to think, okay, well, he was only talking about San Francisco. Like, no, he talked about you know, a good education system, right? You have to have a good amount of investment. You've got to have an influxes of talent. Miami has all those things in spades. We have talent coming up from Latin America, over from Europe, down from Canada and the rest of the U.S. Uh, about 10,000 people move to South Florida every month. 7,500 people move to Miami every single month. And the majority of those people are, have their post-bachelor's degrees. So we're getting very, very talented and very smart people. Um, and then our Miami is the ninth largest center of education in the country. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we're churning out more uh, coders uh, than almost any city in the country, um, mm. including San Francisco. So wow. uh, there's absolutely, so we have the talent, we have an education system, and we have a lot of capital. I think that there's some training around how to invest in startups, how to, you know, I think we, we do a good job on the angel investor side. I think we need more Series A investment uh, to continue to grow an ecosystem. But I think our problems and our challenges are very clearly defined and manageable. Uh, and the things that we've overcome, like being entrepreneurial, for instance, I mean, we're the second most entrepreneurial city in the country. Um, you can't teach that to a city. You know, that's in your DNA. And so we are poised and designed to be a wild success. You know, and I think it's it's a lot of that um, quote unquote, the word in the street type thing, right? It's, you know, if you want to have a startup, you have to go to San Francisco. And, you know, kind of like what you said, like there's there's so many different factors that kind of go into it. I think Miami and particularly South Florida is really just at a point that, you know, people just need to see more examples of really successful companies doing, you know, really well and, you know, stimulating the economy, hiring talented people and, and showing people that, hey, South Florida is not just one Miami and two, it's not just South Beach and it's not just a place that you come to vacation and go party, right? Like it's a place that we could do serious business. It's a place that you could have a serious career and and actually have a fairly substantial effect on the rest of the world. Absolutely. There's no better place to have an impact, I think, for an early stage startup uh, than Miami. Absolutely no better place. And, and even with you saying that, so I actually just went to, a little bit earlier this week, I was at um, Startup FIU. Um, they had a pitch there, and you know they had a you know, bunch of different companies talking about their products and you know, looking for investments and stuff like that. What I want to ask you is, for for these really early stage startups, like you know these people that are still trying to get funding and are even still trying to work out the logistics of their idea, like do you have any advice that you'd give them? Seeing as that you know you've you've been in this for a few years now, I think being a member of the community is really important. I mean, it's kind of what you're doing here, right? Uh, creating community um, virtually. Um, but right. it's important to, to participate in the community. And that could be Slack channels. That could be meetups. I mean, you've definitely got to join Refresh Miami, for instance. Um, you should be going to meetups that are um, going to help you not just find coders and things, but also help you to build and fund and pitch your business. Um, yeah, I think the more you participate in the community, the more you're known, the more you, people you share your idea with, um, the more successful you'll be. Right. And then, you know, you get those differences of opinions that will really help you to kind of vet out, you know, the viability of, of what exactly is your thinking, right? Um, uh, one of the things I always believe in is that 
you can't do it alone. You know, and it's a lesson that I've 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 always tried to teach and something that I've you know had to teach myself a couple of times over and over again. You know, as you get really excited about something and you're digging into it, you know, like don't hold it to yourself. Like talk to other people, share it with other people, you know, um, or at least have 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 somebody be like your your mentor or your confidant that you can kind of talk to about this. Because, you know, putting yourself in a black box and thinking, hey, I'm just going to make this happen. And then one day I'm going to, you know, take the ribbons off the box kind of thing. and Everybody's going to love it is, is really not it's really not practical. Right. I always get kind of sad when I'm talking to a, an early stage entrepreneur and they say, no, I can't talk about it. Like, you know, it's a secret. Somebody's going to steal my idea. It's like, oh, that's just like that person doesn't, they haven't done the research. They haven't even started the process. That means that they're, they've already kind of, they may fail before even starting because that control and command, like personality type, um, is so rarely successful in this current way of building businesses. Yeah, exactly. And another thing that I really like to push is mentorship. It, I think having a mentor is very important. When you were coming up and when you first first started Kairos, did you have anybody that you kind of leaned on as a mentor? Uh, not everyone. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, there was. I wouldn't say that there's. One, I, I wouldn't say there's one person because it would be so disrespectful to the other fifty. Um, sure, I got it. But yeah, I, I constant, uh, constant mentorship. And now we're part of uh, this group called Endeavor, um, which is a nonprofit that helps for profits to scale, and it's all about mentorship. Um, and so, yeah, I continue to be mentored, and now, and I will continue really for the rest of my career. All right, great. So, Brian. I believe in balance. You know, I can't just work all the time. I can't just play all the time. I need to spend time with my friends, my family. I need to, you know, have some time to myself personally, and I need to get work done. What are some of the things that you do when you're not working that kind of help keep you balanced? I believe in balance as well, but I'm terrible at it. Uh, (laughs) I I insist on balance for our team and for, you know, but... uh, uh, I have very little balance. I am a huge, rabid Philadelphia Eagles fan. So okay. if you ever kind of follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you'll see me ranting about the Eagles and their lack of success uh, each week. <laughs> so, Though I'm really high on the, the new quarterback. Um, but really, other than that, I, I, uh, I work a lot, and I've kind of um, given this period of my life uh, to my work. And I, uh, I really hate Saturday. I'm glad we're talking. Today's Saturday for those that are listening, um, that we're recording this, uh, because I get so few emails. And <laughs> <laughs> That might be a sign. It might be a sign that, hey, we're going to give you a break and so you can go and do some other things, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, 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 but I also don't think that that's best practice. And I, I think that uh, I could and should be better. I'd like to work out more. I'm working on my Spanish. I should be doing that a lot more. So, um, yeah, balance, I think, is very important. Nice. And are you a foodie too, a little bit, or not really? You know, I'm a foodie. I am, but I'm from Philly, as I said. So, <laughs> uh, so foodie from Philly is different than foodie from like you know. We're like pe- the people's food. You know, a working man sandwich, like a cheesesteak or whatever. Like, right. I so you. I'm a big fan of something like uh, like a steakhouse or whatever. But I don't get into like those really small plates. Like I need like meat on my <laughs> right, 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 right. yeah 
So with that being said, so do you cook a little bit or, or not really? I do. I do cook a little bit. And that's actually been a good stress reliever for me as well, because if you don't pay attention to the food, you're going to burn it. Right. So right. it kind of forces you to kind of check out a little bit from work. Um, I do. I do a few things um, quite well. You know, uh, I'm single, so I cook a lot of date meals. So um, I can't make something as simple as a meatloaf, but I can make something like uh, a sea bass uh, or uh, braised chicken thighs, uh, Cajun style, like uh, oh, all nice. kinds of, you know, kind of date meals. Um, and then I make some just stuff for me. Like I'm a classic turkey hot dog, George Foreman grill kind of guy. So, so there's that too. I kind of want to get your thoughts on... In terms of technology and, you know, AI and, you know, facial recognition, assistive technology, a lot of these things are becoming like, you know, I don't, I don't want to say household names, but they're becoming very popular, right? Like people are talking about, again, like, like you mentioned, TensorFlow and DeepMind and, you know, IBM has Watson, Microsoft has cognitive services, you know, all of these different things that are happening, right? Like, where does, where does Kairos kind of fit in there? Like, how do you, how do you kind of see yourself differentiating from the pack of all these other existing services. Yeah. You know, for those of us that are kind of in this every day, they're, they all do different things. So IBM, for instance, is really moving more in the direction of the written word. So understanding humanity through text, textual analysis. Um, and they've, they've slowly been kind of um, turning off the visual stuff and kind of and turning up, the text pieces, uh, which we think is actually a very nice compliment for us. We are an IBM partner, and we use IBM services to figure out both sides of the mind. So getting a little deeper, there's two sides of your head, right? There's one part of your mind. It's a little smaller, high energy, constantly scanning the situation that's going on and coming to very quick decisions about safety or not safety or making quick decisions, period. This is a part of the mind that kind of drives the car, so to speak. And then there's the rest of your mind, which is a little bigger, which is for holding larger amounts of data. And that's for that's like your reason to mind. That's everything that you ever learned in school, um, you know, language, math, you know, anything that's that you've studied is in this larger part of your mind and memory. Now, because it's so vast, it's also a little slower, um, and so it's not very good at making snap judgments, which is why it leaves that part of the job to the first part of the mind. Right. And so uh, IBM services, and a lot of these services you're talking about, some of them are for the the deeper part of the mind. That's what IBM is kind of focused on. Kairos is focused on the kind of quick decision-making part of the mind, which is why we're reading your emotions while watching a movie to understand how you feel about it in those snap moments. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, even though we, we all sound like we're doing some similar things, we're actually um, a- applying our technology to different parts of humanity. Um, I don't know if you saw the other day, Amazon released this thing, or they had this commercial, I guess, for Amazon Go, which is going to be their, um, you know, their, I guess you could call it their instant checkout type supermarket. Like you walk in, you pick up what you want, and you walk out. And then the machine learning that they have built into the store kind of just automatically figures out what you picked up and what you put back and then you know at some point between the time you walk out like you'll get charged right have you have you seen that have you taken a look at it? I, I saw the video and in a previous life i worked on a project identical 
about three years ago before that launched. Oh, oh wow, did you? So, intimately familiar. And so what are some of your thoughts about the ways that you, you think these technologies are going to be able to affect us? And, and I'm glad we don't have it yet. I, I, <laughs> I, the, the idea that we have to go through a checkout process is inhuman. Like, so people are worried about changes in society. No, no, like cash registers are the change in society. It is, you know, if you were in a cave and you went over to, to get something, you get, you know, get some fruit and you bring it back to the cave, there's no checkout process, right? So this concept- you that the we, tree and then maybe a lion in the middle. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you should worry about. <laughs> the trees and the lions, like- Right. Uh, so the, the concept that we're trying to hold on to, what in itself is a made-up human construct, to me, is, is is very funny. I think about when you know when the car really kind of got into advent, and people were there were probably there must have been millions of people that changed shoes on horses, and making money and feeding their family on that. People will adapt. You know, they'll become mechanics. They'll become whatever else is the next job. Um, we can't hold society back just based on trying to hold on to a human construct that it in itself only represents a small period of human evolution. No, I, I totally agree with you. You know, in, in a world where everything is becoming a little bit more intelligent, for me, it's almost like opportunity for you to explore, well, what's the next step after that, right? And like, and how can I participate in this world versus kind of stopping progress, like let's embrace it, right? And, and let's kind of see what's the best way that we can kind of, you know, kind of integrate this into our lives so we could start being more productive. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. It will, it will serve us all in the end. We'd like to thank Brian for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like this show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have developer podcaster, Charles Maxwood. Oh yeah, more podcasting! What, what? Yeah, well, let's get to it. See you guys next time. It's another good episode. Peace. to thank you for listening to away from the keyboard as a reminder we will have new episodes each and every week you can interact with us on twitter at aftk podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com hasta luego
was badminton. Um, it's not a sport I see a lot of people play up here, but you know, it was again one of those sports that a lot of people, you know, a lot of Indians, a lot of you know, South Americans and whatnot play. And you know, when I went to college, you know, I happened to go to a college that had a fairly decent international population. So you know, these off the wall sports and games kind of helped. I know some of my best friends, like I either met them on the basketball court, or I met them playing dominoes or, you know, in, in some capacity like that. And, you know, those are the relationships and friendships that, that last for such a long time, I know. So is, is dominoes also a trash talking sport where you're from as well? Oh, man, so much, so much, <laughs> so much, so much, a lot of trash talk, you know, shaking up the whole table. It's, you know, every, every, everything, man. everything. I love it. Everything you play dominoes or, or no? Yeah, that it's it's also kind of a African American trash talk game. Um, and then I hadn't played for years. Then I got moved to Miami, and there's this neighbor's older gentleman, super nice, um, and he would just have people in his front yard like for hours, hours and hours playing dominoes and talking trash. And um, it was just yeah, it was just really rem- reminded me of like my childhood and stuff. It was really cool. <laughs> 